In Scotland, when friends get together, they blether. When these three friends happen to be Scottish Blue Badge tourist guides, you can be sure that the country that they're so passionate about will be right at the heart of their discussions, be it contemporary or historical, culinary or cultural, reminiscence or anecdote. From accommodation to zoos, the chat will range right across the entire alphabet of topics and issues that are live and happening in Scotland right now. We hope that you'll join us. There's nothing to beat a recht good blether. And you could also join in our blethers on social media. You can find us as at Scottish Blethers on both Facebook and Instagram. We post additional content during the week that supports the podcast episode. We love making the podcasts and would love it if you could share them with your friends and leave a review on the platform of your choice. Hello, welcome to another edition of Scottish Blethers. And it's a very important edition because this is number 50, our 50th edition. What did you call it, Helen? What did you refer to as? Oh, I, I said we should have a big bing bong or something to go with it. But we'll, we'll, call, we'll call it our golden, our golden anniversary. Our golden anniversary. I think that's fantastic, Helen. So I'm Liz Lister. And I'm Helen Houston. And it's amazing that we have survived for 50 episodes. We're in our, the, we could call ourselves the golden girls, Helen. There you go. Oh, somebody else not got that name. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> Anyway, we, last week we were talking about Sir Walter Scott because it was his 250th anniversary of his birth. And so we mentioned then his house, his fine country manor, Abbotsford, and we said that we'd return to it. Well, we've decided to keep the Sir Walter Scott theme going. And indeed, this week we are going to talk about Abbotsford. Have you visited Helen? Yes, I have. It's, it's a wonderful visit. I think it's really, and there's a lot to do down in that area, but Abbotsford itself is just, it's so different, Liz, isn't it? It is. I mean, I think we should explain, first of all, where it is. The Scottish yes. borders, they may just be an hour to drive down from Edinburgh, but they are an area that people very often overlook when they come to visit Scotland, and they are a beautiful area. The southern uplands are low um, rolling hills, beautiful hills, beautiful countryside, and as I say, very close to centres of population, just an hour's drive. But when you do get there, they do cover a big expanse, and it's very, it's a very easy mistake to make when thinking about travelling between the different towns of the borders. That's right, because it certainly is, you know, and I have to say, Liz, although there are not so many roads down there, I do tend to get lost a little bit when I'm down there. But, you know, when you're going to Abbotsford, you're so close to Melrose and other border abbeys and Jedburgh. It's it, you could spend a day or more or even two, two days down in the borders and never tire of it. And last week we talked about how the borders were such an important influence on the work 
of Sir Walter Scott. He was brought up there um, at the home of his maternal grandmother and his aunt, who told him all the stories of the, the border tales and songs and the poems, which were to have such an impact on his writing in later life. And so it was always a place that he really loved. And when he got the job as deputy sheriff of Selkirkshire, um, his boss basically said, well, you're supposed to be down here, so you better get yourself a house down here. And so he didn't need any second telling. And um, he had he did have a lease on one house at Ashes Steel. But um, he when that lease was up, he bought a modest farmhouse at Newarthoch on the banks of the River Tweed. It was also known as Cartley Hole. And I'll come back to that in our word of the week at the end. Yes, yes, it's you. But he he didn't he didn't like the names. He had his own name. He thought I'll call it Abbotsford, because it was close by to where the monks used to cross over by ford over the River Tweed. The monks from Melrose Abbey. So that was his great knowledge of history just kicking into place. But he was thinking, I don't see the relevance of these names. I'm going to call it. Abbotsford, that's more relevant. Yeah, it really was an opportunity to let his imagination run riot. And remember that his two great passions were history and literature. So it was his opportunity to combine these in a fantasy which would eventually develop from it. But when he bought it, it wasn't really considered large enough for his growing family. He had four children at that time and he knew he was going to have to expand it. But his first concern was not about the house. His first concern was about buying up the land. And he did that very quickly, didn't he? Because the money was coming in from his from his writings. And so he very quickly expanded the acreage from 110 acres to 1,400 acres within a very few years. But with four children, he had to keep thinking about the living space as well, Liz. Yeah, it's like houses today. You buy a house and no sooner have you bought it than you're thinking about the yes. next extension. And by the time it got through into 1821, 1822, by this time he was reaching his zenith and the money was pouring in. And so the sky was his limit. And this time when he went for an extension, there was no holding him back. Yeah, he just built and built and built. And he kind of called it a rambling, whimsical, picturesque were the expressions he used at different times to describe the building because he'd no end plan he was just doing add-ons and it wasn't exactly didn't exactly become the house that jack built because he did manage to bring beauty into it yeah i mean he had so many friends that were at the absolute cutting edge of design and architecture that he used the best to help him with his plans people would sketch things out make their suggestions and eventually he ended up choosing one of the top architects of the time william atkinson who later would become famous for remodelling Chequers. If you've ever heard of the Prime Minister of the UK's country residence, that's Chequers in Buckinghamshire. So he was no, no slouch when it came to architecture. Um, he helped him to design it. And he also had a man called David Ramsey Hay. He was an interior designer, a bit like a Lawrence Llewellyn Bowen of changing rooms <laughs> of his time. Yes. And he, he helped him to give this weather-beaten, theatrical appearance which is what he was searching he was really searching for creating the landscape and the the location 
for what his novels were 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 now writing about. He he always created in writing his his idea for his house. So the house had to kind of change and and modify and extend and balance what what his writings were. I suppose a wee bit like Hogwarts and Edinburgh, isn't it? That's right. Yeah, it's true. All the it comes back as you hear about his collections. Um, he collected everything. We talked about that, and he he had a place to put them all. Yeah. So he would go around. You were talking about and picking up some of the ecclesiastical remnants from Dunfermline Abbey. Um, he would go all over Scotland picking up anything that he could bring back, whether it's large or small, if it had any particular historical or cultural relevance. He wanted it, a bit like um, Randolph Hearst or... Or Burrell, Burrell Collection, yes. William Burrell, exactly. You know, they were just avid collectors of everything. And what collection he had and what are your favourites from his collection? Yeah, well, I think I think probably a bit like himself. You know, he used to, when he was showing people around himself, he always made a, made a point of pointing out things like Bonnie Dundee's um, sword and... Rob Roy's Sporran. In fact, I watched a wee video of two of his, well, the last ones, the latest um, survivors. They're they're no longer they're no longer surviving. Um, they they were very proud of Rob Roy's Sporran. They called it his purse, and I think nowadays <laughs> men wouldn't really uh, uh, appreciate having their Sporran called a purse. So that, that that was what he he liked. But Liz, did you? read about you know, his desk we know about his desk and how we, most of his writing was done at his desk which still sits there in Abbotsford but d- did you know that in very recently 1935 they found two secret drawers in the desk and one of them contained over 50 letters that were written by Scott to his wife before and after their marriage so that was quite a find, wasn't it? And the fact he kept them, that was so romantic, yes. It was romantic. I mean, this is the romantic era. This is what the whole architecture was about, romance. And you know, it was, it was what was called, what would become in time, the Scots baronial, Scottish baronial form of architecture, where they were going back to an era of turrets and castellated walls and whatever, a romantic and in time, because he was so influential as a writer in Scotland, this style of architecture became the norm. And even Queen Victoria latched onto it because when she was having, she and Albert were having Balmoral built, they copied this Scottish baronial style, this romantic style of architecture. Yeah, and, and in fact, Scott himself just called it a conundrum castle. He wasn't <laughs> too sure himself what it was all about. But as you say, Liz... It became popular, so therefore the conundrum kind of disappeared and everybody went for it. Exactly. I always think of the church on the side of Loch Awe. What's the name of it again? St Conan's Church. St Conan's Kirk, right, where the, the dutiful son um, built the church for his mother and sister because the, they didn't like it, the, the existing church, because it was too far to go on a Sunday morning. And he was a collector of everything ecclesiastical, so it was a, a mismatch of different styles and, and artefacts that he had collected along the way. I always, think, I always think when I go there, I think, gosh, 
somebody's been busy in the architectural salvage yards <laughs> but it's it's fascinating we'll talk about that in another another time Liz another occasion yeah just laying the ground there for another one but when we're talking about his collection one of the the artifacts that I think that, that really takes well, it's a couple of artifacts that really takes the biscuit literally is a bullet and a piece of oat cake oh, taken right, from yeah. the site of Culloden Battlefield. Can you imagine that? Going to an auction and buying one single bullet and a piece of oat cake. I mean, he was quite the collector. Yeah. I think I think the two sisters that were showing, I'll try and find that, that little video again and put it, the link onto the Facebook page of the two sisters taking us round Abbotsford. And they, they have the biscuit and Rob Roy's purse there as well. So, so again, in another room of the building, which I find fascinating, is the library, Liz, because it has absolutely everything in it. And it also kind of sort of is indicative of his international popularity because he's got books in there. Books were sent from all over the world. The Brothers Grimm of Grimm's Fairy Tale sent him their first book of fairy tales from Germany. And Washington Irving sent books from America. And Lachlan Macquarie, who we know from Mull, he was the governor of New South Wales, and sent him The Tale of a Bushranger, the first book ever published in Tasmania. I think that gives a huge indication of the, the respect that he was held in throughout the world. Yeah, but when you go and visit Abbotsford, you, know, you go into the library and it, it's just so impressive. There's 7,000 books in there. And then he had another 2,000 in his study, so over 9,000 books in total. But it's not that they were there you know, just as objects. You know, as you say, he was collecting what other people had sent to them. These were books that were read and used on a regular basis. This was the inspiration for his stories. This is where he did his research. And when you look inside the books, many of them have got notes annotated on them. So this was a living, breathing library, not just a, a collection of books decorating the walls as so many libraries are. I was interested too that the lecture notes that he took as a young law student are in the library. And it was interesting when we were clearing out my, my parents' house a few years back, we found my father's lecture notes when he was a law student and he used to write the notes in shorthand. So that was at the front of the, of the, of the jotter that he used. And then he transcribed that into you know, real words at the back. So I think law students must have kept their notes for a long time. <laughs> Yeah, and talking of keeping things, one of the other rooms in the house, which is quite intriguing, is the armoury. And you, we mentioned last last week that Sir Walter Scott had one leg shorter than the other because of polio as a child. And you know, his later relatives have said that if he had been able to, they think that the career that he would probably have chosen would have been as a soldier. That was the adventure and the travel were what really appealed to him. But of course, his disability prevented him from doing that. But this was the era in which Napoleon represented a constant threat that he would invade Britain. And so you had these volunteer forces that were set up. And Sir Walter Scott was very instrumental in setting one up in a, a, a volunteer um, regiment in, in Edinburgh and training down at Leith and Musselburgh. And he was also the quartermaster for this. So all his 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 uniform and his arms from that era are in his armoury and amongst his collection. 
And he also said, um, when he was looking and thinking, or people were saying, you know, what do you need all this stuff for? So he, he said, to my mind, he chuckled, they are very rare and handsome, but I defy you to say that there is a single item among them which can be of any use to any human being excepting me. <laughs> well, certainly two of the arms that were of use to them was a blunderbuss and a Spanish flintlock both of which he used for shooting around Abbotsford. <laughs> so certainly you can go straight onto his land if he had a, a blunderbuss and a Spanish flintlock. That's right. That's right, yes. No, he, he was an amazing man in terms of you know, what his mind was doing. It was sort of dancing in all directions, and that comes out in his writings, and it comes out very strongly when you visit Abbotsford, when you go to the house that he, the house that he built for himself to satisfy all his own sort of whims and, and notions. And one of his great passions was entertaining, and he loved to have visitors at Abbotsford. It was open house, and people would come to stay for days at a time. And of course, that meant providing all the hospitality and the entertainment. So the drawing room, the Chinese drawing room at Abbotsford, would have been full of the sound of laughter and entertaining the top people of the time. The Wordsworths were regular visitors there, and his daughter would entertain them, um, playing Scott, the border ballads on her harp. Um, there would be comedians, there would be humour and laughter, and everybody spoke about what a fantastic experience it was to go and visit. But Liz, don't you think that his own the, you know, portraits of him and the statues of him just don't give that side of him at all. He looks quite a doer man, quite a serious man. You can't see him sitting just relaxing and enjoying, but it comes out that he certainly did, and everybody else's writings and descriptions of these, Cayleys, I suppose you'd call them. Yeah, yeah, just um, family entertainment, family hours. But you mentioned painters there. I mean, he was painted by all the great portrait painters of the time. We've got the famous one, which was by Rayburn, uh, which which is in the National Gallery. But another famous uh, famous artist of the time was Landseer, the monarch of the Glen, was his famous picture but he also painted but what he said when he wrote about it he painted a portrait another famous portrait of Scott and what he said was that he had to paint all his animals first he was a regular visitor to Abbotsford and and um, Scott insisted that he painted all his dogs and all the pets around the house and then finally he was allowed to paint um, Scott with his with two of his dogs. So some of the most famous artists of the time have all produced their own works. One of, one of the stories of paintings that I love, Liz, is the one various drawings and paintings were given to him by, by Charles Kirkpatrick Sharp. And one of them denotes the Reaver's Wedding, which depicts Scott's handsome ancestor, Willie Scott of Harden, captured while raiding the lands of Murray of Ellibank and given the option of being hanged or of marrying Murray's ugly daughter. Now, you've got to watch what you're saying here. This is controversial, Helen. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, remember? Well, that's right, yes. But she was known as Mucklemouthed Meg. <laughs> I think that's lovely. According to Scott, it was not until Willie Scott found one end of the rope made fast to his neck and the other knitted to a sturdy oak tree that his resolution gave way. 
he prepared an ugly wife to a literal noose. But it is said they were a very happy couple and lived happily ever after. And as you say, Liz, beauty was certainly in the eye of the beholder. It may have been for a more beautiful life than on the end of a, a rope, but it turned out to be a beautiful marriage. Exactly. I suppose it's what you would call the equivalent of a shotgun wedding in Scotland. The noose at the end of, of your neck, around your neck. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, when you visit, one of the, the great things about visiting Abbotsford is the opportunity to see all these artefacts and to see these beautiful rooms because they've changed very little since the day of Sir Walter Scott. That's right. They, they've, they've maybe, I think the library has, the study has changed use. But that's about all. It's just as he as he could was as he saw it and he planned it. And when you walk around, you can you can feel his presence, especially when you're in the the room where his desk is. You can just almost see him sitting there. Yeah, I think that. And I also think that you feel his presence in the dining room because that was the room that he actually died in. Remember last week we said that he had been on this grand tour to try and improve his health after suffering a stroke. So he'd been away for a year in Malta, Naples and Rome. And he was travelling home when he suffered a second stroke uh, or a series of strokes. And so he was really ill by the time that he got to Abbotsford. But he rallied, particularly with the emotion of being reunited with his beloved dogs, because the dogs were the, the love of his life, apart from his wife and family. And then he turned to his house and he said that, I have seen much, but nothing like my own house. Give me one more turn. Take me around it in the wheelchair. Show me every corner of it. And then as he began to fail... He, he was given a seat in the window of the dining room and the family gathered around him and his son-in-law, who was one of his great friends, John Gibson Lockhart, he said it was so quiet a day that the sound he loved best, the gentle ripple of the tweed over its pebbles, was distinctly audible as we knelt around his bed. So, you know, he, he, he had achieved his life's work and he had his beloved Abbotsford. Yes, and I think that that just shows how much he just loved this. And the fact that his family around him, and I think of celebrities today, Liz, he was a huge celebrity in his day, but he he wanted the simple things, which was his own, his own fireside, really, and looking out at the view that he had created, where he'd chosen to be, and his family around him. Yeah, it was such a shame that he only really enjoyed it to the full for one year because one year after this great remodelling took place was when the crash came and he got into the financial difficulty and so he was basically writing morning, noon and night, literally, to clear his name by his pen and that, of course, led to the ill health that eventually led to his death. But I think that where he did get a little bit of escape was, as we mentioned earlier, in the tree planting. You know, he said... He may have been the most prolific writer, but it was the tree planting that gave him the most pleasure. Yeah, planting and pruning trees I could work at from morning to night. A bit like myself. (laughs) It is a bit like you, Liz, isn't it? And you're a good writer as well, so there you go. Oh, well, I certainly have making the money, that's for sure. (laughs) And of course, we're talking about trees, Helen, but what about the gardens at Abbotsford? They're, they're just they're just wonderful. I mean, I'm not a gardener, as you know, but the thing that I think is is fascinating 
is you know, I can admire them, but it's the wall, the walled garden and the heat, the heating inside the wall for the for the trees, for the, pr- the fruit to grow on them. Yeah, they, the, the brick walls, they have stoves and that heats up walls and they had the, the peachery or the um, the pineapple house where they would grow these exotic plants. And of course, this this was the era of the plants, how, the plant hunters. So Scott would have been paying people to bring back all these exotic species so that he could show them off in his gardens at Abbotsford. But the gardens were really there to show off the house. They were giving it this picturesque setting. Yeah, that's right, because the South Court, which was designed as the formal entrance for Abbotsford, an imposing entrance gate and high surrounding walls, which was really to kind of make it based on the cloisters at Melrose Abbey. He was still bringing into his gardens his thinking of history and what was there. And isn't the the, the glass house is a rare surviving example, and it was designed by Scott, and he used it as a place of retreat from bad weather, as if we'd have any here in Scotland, Liz. <laughs> and yeah. it, but probably it was designed and based on a night's campaigning as a, as a jousting pavilion. Yeah, as you do, hey? you'd build a little jousting pavilion in your garden. And that's when, when he'd when he'd grown all his um, plants in the hot houses and whatever, he'd put them in there for visitors to admire on uh, on wooden steps um, to show off all his accomplishments as a gardener. No, I mean, I'm just reflecting here as we're talking about um, Abbotsford. Uh, I'm just reflecting on a, a house nearby, Fleurs Castle. Fleurs Castle, you visited Fleurs Castle, Helen? Oh, yes, it again is a stunning a stunning visit and on the River Tweed, isn't it? It's another one on the Tweed, yes. This is the home of the Innes Kerr family, the Dukes, um, the Dukes of Roxburgh, um, a title that was given after the Act of Union in 1707 when they were supportive of, of the Union. Um, so 300 years old, so 300 years this year. It was built in 1721. And the reason that I think of it when I'm thinking of Abbotsford is, I thought, an interesting topic tours that have gone wrong now I know that as a guide Helen you probably have very few of these but it was early on in my guiding career and it was just the tour from hell right and it, it sends shudders through me right it was to go down to Fleur's Castle it was to pick a party up at the Balmoral Hotel in Edinburgh and I as a blue badge guide you always have to be there early and you always have to be on your toes and you always have to be fully organized and being fully organised means that you do a recce. So I had been down to the borders because at that time it wasn't an area that I knew well. And I knew that there's a, a way through Fleurs Castle where you go in one gate and you go out another. So I'd done my recce, I had everything planned. And the driver that I got this day, it was an executive coach, he turned up late. Now that's something that drivers never do. So we didn't have a proper hand over you at the beginning a little chat about what we're doing for the day straight into the bus straight down to Fleur's Castle and I had to drop this party off because they were getting a private guided tour so I even said to him there was one of the the guests had a bad knee I said we'll go in and get him a less elastic bandage at the pharmacy so I took him in and I said this is the route that I want to go and this is the way that I want to come out because we're due at Abbotsford for lunch at 12 30. I I know my way I know where I'm going I'm all right well, they came out of Fleur's Castle by a completely different gate and got us completely lost. And as, as you said earlier, Helen, the distances, the roads are so confusing down there. 
I had no idea where we were going. And the organiser of the party was getting more and more irate. I could feel it in the back. And by the time we got to Abbotsford, we were booked in for lunch at the Ochiltree restaurant. And um, we were 45 minutes late and the restaurant was full to the brim. And I went up to the restaurant manager and I said, look, I'm sorry, really. And they said, oh, well, I'm sorry, but you've, you've lost your slot. That's it. You've had it. And I think she saw the look of desperation, sheer desperation that passed over my face. And she said, we'll find something for you. So I did a tour for them round Abbotsford and we came back and they got their lunch. And we had a brilliant afternoon and I retrieved the situation. But still to this day, unfortunately, I the flures of Abbotsford bring to mind the terrible situation when things go wrong. Do you have any of those? Oh, yes. Well, I'm just thinking the, the Flores Castle one. I actually did a driver guiding down to Broxborough, Broxburghshire and Flores Castle. But fortunately, to take my people down and get them installed in their hotel. And then I drove into Kelso, which is the town that Flores Castle is in. You know, just as you say, Liz, to make sure I could get my way in the next day and find my way out again. Because the big the big barrier there is the River Tweed. You have to find a bridge to get over the River Tweed. Well, I went into Kelso, no bother at all. I had my tea and then I thought, no, I'll just go back out again. Well, an hour and a half later, fortunately I was on my own, I found the bridge back over the River Tweed. But the good thing was that in that hour and a half, I had been round and round the walls of Fleurs Castle so often that I really knew exactly where I was at any one stone in the wall. So the next day went like a dream. So no problem with the, with the guests, only with me. Well, that's it. I mean, the motto of a guide is failure to plan is planning to fail. Right. You have to do your planning beforehand. And uh, I've been caught out on one occasion. I'd been on holiday and I hadn't done a proper recce. I had done the recce and this was a couple again being picked up at the Balmoral. And they were doing gardens in Scotland. So we went to Mullaney Garden outside uh, Balerno, which was, was lovely. A little national trust, beautiful, famous for its roses and its yew trees. I'd done my research. I'd got the gardener. He was on hand to help answer questions and whatever. And I had set up a nice lunch for them at um, South Queen's Ferry. I got them a table overlooking the, the Firth of Forth and whatever. Everything was going well. And then we went to the, it just seemed to go downhill from there. I don't know what it was, but we went to the botanics, the botanic gardens in Edinburgh. And usually people want to wander around about. And so I had led them into it and I said, um, these are the um, these are the Chinese gardens. Perhaps you'd like to, to go where you want. No. You will pick your three favourite areas of the garden and you will take us and show them. And I had to, you know, I love the Queen Mum's garden, I love the Queen Mother's garden, and I love the wildlife pond. But it was kind of being put on the spot and I felt I hadn't, you know, given them enough. And it turned out that he was actually, he manufactured table linen in the United States. And as you know, Helen, Dunfermline is the, you know, the world centre for the production of linen at, the, at its height. Now, there was so much I could have given them if they had just given me more idea of their interests or whatever. But um, I always, I felt on the spot that day, so I don't like that. So I like to plan ahead. Yes, and I think, I think you've actually touched on something because as, as tourist guides, Liz, that we are quite dependent on the itineraries that are set by the tour operators. And... You know, usually the, these itineraries are very good, but occasionally, as you say, you find it 
another question would have perhaps opened another much more important door, like finding that he was a linen manufacturer, you could have done things in Dunfermline. Just that, that question that was missing. Yeah, I think as a, as a guide, you feel such a sense of oh, responsibility totally, yes. because you have people's time, um, more important than money, um, it's, it's their valuable time. You want them to have the best possible experience. And so I find that there's two situations where things can go wrong. Things can go wrong because of something you've done, which is absolutely dreadful if there's a problem like that. But other times things go wrong because of factors which are outside your control. And I love that because then you can demonstrate your resourcefulness. You've got to work hard, yes. Well, it was quite interesting because just as you see that things that you've got no control over, I've had a few kind of situations where a tour member, a guest has uh, ended up needing medical attention. And one was uh, the lady who um, broke her leg on Glen, at Glencoe. Just literally a very simple thing, just off the coach, taking photographs, her foot rolled on a pebble and she went down and she broke her, her leg. But fortunately for me, Liz, on that particular occasion, I could concentrate on bringing in the ambulances and getting your help in that direction because I had a doctor who was also a guest in the group and he just took charge of patient comfort. So so that that helped a lot. But I have to say that the mountain rescue came and took her off and the ambulance men came and then she ended up in Ragmore in Inverness. And I a week later I went up to see her thinking, oh my goodness, how is somebody who's probably used to a private room settling into a National Health Service hospital, which are fantastic for us, but you don't always get a private room. There she was, Liz, sitting at the side of her bed with her, her leg in a stooky, as we talked about the other week, her leg in a stooky, having a great time. She said, Helen, I'm loving it here. I'm chatting to everybody. That little old lady across the ward, she's talked nonstop to me. I have no idea what she's saying, but I'm just smiling and nodding and I'm loving every second of it. <laughs> well, there, you're definitely bringing to mind two very dear friends now. Um, and it, they, they refer to what was their alternative Scottish tour. And we shouldn't laugh because it was the most serious of any events that I've ever had on tour. But, um, that this lady Pam was married to a physician himself and towards the end of the tour they became quite quiet and withdrawn but the tour finished on the last evening at the welcome dinner and there was nothing untoward and at nine o'clock in the morning I got a phone call from reception to say that one of my guests had been taken by ambulance to Edinburgh Royal Infirmary and I'm thinking oh my goodness what's happened here um suspected heart attack so I saw the other guests off it was the final time that I would see them at breakfast and I went straight round to Edinburgh Royal Infirmary and they let me into intensive care which was was very surprising and what it was was a massive embolism on the lung which had split up and had traveled all over her body through her heart and so you know by all accounts this woman should have been dead but she was immediately put on uh, clot busting drugs and several scans and she got the best of care was in intensive care for several days before she got moved up into the ordinary ward and um, she refers to it as the alternative to she thought it was wonderful as well so I don't advise it but there <laughs> the national tour of the national health service can be quite illuminating 
Well, I'm just going to just mention one wee rider on that one. Similar situation to the one you just told. Uh, but my lady ended up in hospital in Ireland at half at seven o'clock on a Sunday morning in the A&E, Accident and Emergency area. Now, Sunday morning, seven o'clock, you've got all the accidents and inverted commas that happened on a Saturday night <laughs> due to drinking. Lining the walls, <laughs> but again, she was great. She had a fabulous, you know, a fabulous time. If one can have a fabulous time, but she really enjoyed it, and she'd stay in for a week, and then another few days before they would allow her to fly home. But you know, I think staff and people make all the difference in these situations. Absolutely, we could go on for we could go on for hours and hours, Helen, with all these um, adventures that we've had, and maybe maybe another day we will have some. If the people like these, they can write in and tell us. Let us into more secrets of what went on in tour. We're just frightened we put you all off, and that nobody ever tours with us again. We want to get back to diving. But no, and we we have we have to reassure everybody. Every single one of our little adventures ends up on a very positive note. Plenty stories to tell. But unfortunately, time is running out. And I think this week we've both taken words which um, refer to what we've been talking about today. That's right. Well, I'm the word I'm using is hoch. That's H-A-U-G-H. And because when Sir Walter Scott bought his house or got his house, it was lying in a, a low hoch on a bank by the River Tweed. And a hoch is a Scottish word for a piece of level ground on the bank of a river. Good word, Helen. And I referred, as I said, that the locals, the local residents called Muirth Hoch, which was the name of the house, the farmhouse that he bought originally. It was also, it went by the name of, of Cartley Hole. But the local people used to call it Clarty Hole. Now in Scotland, Clarty is a very good Scottish word. Clarty means really dirty or mucky. So get your clarty feet off my clean kitchen flare. Yeah, good, good word, Liz. And I think one, one that we've used a lot to our children and grandchildren over the years. Indeed. Clarty feet. Or husbands, even. <laughs> never, <laughs> never. <laughs> well, I've really enjoyed episode 50 with the Golden Girls. Um, big shout out to those of you who are listening, who've been with us since the beginning and have been tremendous support. We've had huge enjoyment doing it. Um, so we'll just keep on heading in there till we get to our centenary. Oh, well, Liz, there's a, a challenge for us, a target to meet, which we will do. We will do. We'll see if anybody's sure. listening to yes. us by the end of it. Tell your friends, get them to listen in. Thank you for listening to Scottish Blethers. Bye for now. Bye for now. And there we have it, the end of another episode of Scottish Blethers. If you'd like to join us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram as at Scottish Blethers. And if you'd like to leave a review, please do so on your podcast platform of choice. It's cheery bye from me. Ta-ta the new from me. And if I don't see you through the week, I'll see you through the windy from me. Bye. See ya. Bye. Bye.